Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, the podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and we have made it to 2021. And I am so thrilled to kick off this year with Disha Filia. Disha's book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, was a finalist for the National Book Award and on just about every list of 2020, including the Stacks Best Books of 2020. Disha talks with us today about her journey to becoming an author, how her stories come to her, and she tells us a lot about the books that have impacted her life. Reminder, the Stacks Book Club for January is The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans, and we will discuss the book on Wednesday, January 27th with Disha Filia. If one of your New Year's resolutions for 2021 was to support artists and creators that you love, here are some ways you can show a little love to the stacks. One is make sure that you subscribe to this podcast and leave us a rating and a review. This is so easy and it's a free thing and it has a huge outsized impact. So please, please, please subscribe, rate, review. Two is you can follow the stacks on social media. We are at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. If you're planning on buying something from one of our sponsors, please use the Stacks codes. Those will always be in the show notes of every episode. Another super easy thing you can do is tell everyone you know about the Stacks. That means your friends, your family, the members of your in-person book club, booksellers at your local indie, anyone you know who reads, please let them know about the Stacks. And then the last thing is you can join the Stacks Pack which is the Stacks community on Patreon. These folks contribute monthly and earn perks for their generosity. Perks include things like discounts on merch, our monthly virtual book club where we dive even deeper into the Stacks book club picks. Another perk of joining the Stacks pack is getting a shout out on the show. And this week, I'm giving a little love to some of our newest members. Jensen, Ashley Garland, Lisette Medrano, Tessa Palfrey, Lupe, Abby Wolf, Allie Longwell, Caitlin Trillo, Vicky Prebill, Leah Beige, and Hannah Gribble. Thank you all again for being a part of the Stacks Pack. And if you're interested in joining, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Okay, enough, enough, enough. Let's get to this first episode of 2021 with the amazing Disha Filia. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Disha Filia. Okay, Disha, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Tracy. Happy to be here. 
I'm so excited that you're here. It's it's a truly just thrilling moment for me because I found out about your book over the summer 2020, since we're recording this in 2020, but it's airing in 2021, <laughs> from Kiese Lehman. And he mm-hmm. was like, you have to keep an eye out for this book. And he said it on the podcast. Oh, and I'm pretty sure that, I don't know, 50% of my listeners immediately pre-ordered your book. And yeah, I... And for all of the people who did and who have read your book, I think I can speak for them. We love you. We think you're a genius. And Kiese <laughs> is amazing for just letting us know we needed to know about you because oh my gosh. you're a, a hero. Like, what? Did Thank you write you. the greatest book I've ever, like, I, it's just so good. You're just so talented that it's like, and it's really exciting because I heard about you on that podcast and now here you yeah. are to talk about us, talk about you with us. <laughs> and I heard that podcast and people started a hashtag and it was something like, Kiese told me to read it or something. Oh. I'm not going to do it just, they actually created a hashtag that's still around. Oh and I was just floored. And I, you know, I love the conversation between you and Kiese, the whole, that whole episode. Um, but somebody pinged me and was like, they mentioned you in your book. And so I, I listened. And so thank you so much for that. But for everything you do for books and authors, I just really appreciate you. Oh my God. I appreciate books and authors so much. I don't know where I'd be without y'all. So please, Um, you don't know this, but my listeners will know this at the time of this airing, but your book was on our top 10 books of the year from the stacks, which, you know, it's the stack will be posted soon. So you'll see it It's like right on top because it's just so slim. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What a way to end the year. I'm excited I know. about You've that. You've had one hell of a year, it. I feel. It has been a wild ride in the Ponderosa. Uh, <laughs> you know, just a year of, you know, just really high highs. And of course, you know, against the backdrop of, you know, some rough times, but, um, but the community aspect of it, like just authors rallying around each other. And I discovered Bookstagrammers. Yeah. Did, didn't know about bookstagrammers and bookstagrammers are just the best community and it just keeps on giving it's not this sort of one-time thing where you somebody posts your book or you talk to them but we're just in constant conversation with each other and and really having fun and so I just appreciate that community um that really made a difference me too I love them I mean I'm part of bookstagram and also not in some ways and I love I like to think that I'm more part of it than I'm not but just such a great you know, embrace of reading. And mm-hmm. I find that people are so smart and thoughtful yes. and generous. Yes. And even, you know, when someone doesn't like something, I'm often really like excited by that too. You know, like it, it mm-hmm. helps me to frame my own understanding of work and yeah. what did I miss and what, you know, why was that offensive that I, and I didn't see it or whatever. Right, but I want right. to backtrack We're from each other. Exactly. Exactly. I want to backtrack a little bit because we sort of dove in, but I normally like to give people a little bit of sense of who I'm talking to. So okay. for people who aren't on bookstagram or didn't listen to the episode with Kiese or haven't read your book yet, um, your book that came your debut short story collection came out in 2020 and it's called the secret lives of church ladies um but even before that you're a whole person so why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself sort of maybe where you're from where you where you live now if that's different um and Mm -hmm. maybe like kind of how you came into writing sure so uh excuse me i was born and raised in jacksonville florida 
Um, and then I left for college. And so I, but I've been in Pittsburgh since 1997. And so now I've lived in Pittsburgh longer than I lived in my hometown. Mm. Um, so I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> I, I have a lot of nostalgia for the, for the South that shows up all through the secret lives of church ladies. You know, almost all the stories except one are set in the South. Um, I have two children and uh, both of, I have daughters and uh, my oldest is 22. My youngest is 17. And I came to writing because um, I, after a terrible stint as a management consultant and then a short stint as an elementary school teacher for a couple of years. And then when we moved to Pittsburgh from, we had been in New York and Connecticut for a while, came to Pittsburgh and um, decided to start a family. And I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I had this toddler who you can relate to um, probably. Well, I don't know, yours a little, and and they, and uh, you know, you said they slept. You told me they slept. My oldest never napped. Oh. And so I, right, like, (laughs) exactly, never napped. And she was like really intense. And so I would carve out this little bit of time for myself, like 30 minutes, Mm. and I would write. And sometimes she'd be like screaming on the other side of the door and I'd be crying too, but I'd be writing, you know? (laughs) And so that's how I got started. Um, And I was, um, you know, I I talk about the fact that I don't, I don't, I didn't think of myself as writing about church ladies per se, but I was writing about dissatisfied women 20 Mm. years ago um, because I was a dissatisfied woman, Mm. but I didn't feel comfortable writing about myself and Mm. is nonfiction. And so I just gave my dissatisfaction to these characters. um, And, but even then they were church women because of that nostalgia that I mentioned, you know, I grew up in the church and, those were the women that I remembered and I was truly fascinated by. So when I started writing, they bubbled up to the surface. I love that. So do you feel like there are particular women and let me just say this for everybody. We won't spoil anything. We won't spoil any of the stories today. Don't worry. Um, But do, do you feel like you see yourself still in any of the characters or any of the characters from from the collection are feel more like you than others or that you still relate to? Because I think, I mean, I can speak for myself. I I am satisfied in many ways, but of course I'm always a little Mm -hmm. unsatisfied, right? Like that keeps you going. (laughs) Yes. Yes. there, I, there are pieces of me throughout the the, the collection. Mm-hmm. There's no one character like that's me or that's mm-hmm. my mom or that's our situation or anything like that. Um, but definitely, um, the you know, uh, I think about Jael, who is a teenage character. Like she's braver than I am, and so one of the things that she and it, well, and, and I hesitate to call it bravery because you know she stands up to people who predators basically, right, right. and that doesn't mean that people who don't stand up to them aren't brave, right? You know, it's just a um, different type of person. Yeah, and um, and so you know, in a and so certainly the some of the experiences that she has around being harassed on the street, for example, um, you know, I don't know a black woman who, as a child, didn't endure something like that. Um, so you know, I hearken back to those things. Um, there's a lot of longing throughout the book of women's longing, um, and you know, I have been married and divorced twice. So I have a lot of longing, um, a lot of there's grief in the book. I have a lot of grief. I, you know, 
two divorces and my I lost um, my both my parents and my grandmother. So there's a lot of grief that, you know, is woven through that. So I didn't intentionally, like I did 20 years ago, say, okay, this is how I'm feeling. So I'm going to put it here. You know, so much time has passed um, since I started, since, you know, in, in my life, there's a lot of things that I've healed from and learned from. And so it showed up more like organic or subconsciously. Like mm-hmm. I didn't realize that there would be so much mother daughter stuff in this book until I finished it. Right. And it was like, Oh, wait a minute. I guess I had <laughs> stuff I had to work out. You know, right. like there was some unfinished business with my mother, you know, my mother passed away mm-hmm. in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that stuff sort of popped up in really unexpected way, unexpected for me. I love the collection so much. And so I'm sitting here trying to be like, how can I talk about it without talking about it? Because I don't <laughs> want to ruin it for anybody else. Um, and I okay. also, I'm, I'm also more than like listeners at home, read this collection. It's incredible. You all know, I don't really like fiction. So for me to be talking about fiction like this is just like point blank. It's got to be at least baseline, like very, very good because normally I hate all fiction, but top crowd. <laughs> yeah. No, I truly, I truly, I mean, my listeners know they're like, oh, you mm-hmm. said you, you said you enjoyed a, a chapter in this book. So I picked it up because <laughs> I thought maybe since I like fiction, I'd actually like it, you know, but, but so I don't want to give anything away in the books. I want people mm-hmm. to read it and experience it, but there are so many incredible characters. Each story has like Thank some you. really, you know, people that stay with you and that you think mm-hmm. about. I've been calling her Jael, but I guess I was saying mm-hmm. that wrong. But she, Jael, she's Jael my favorite. That's my favorite story. I just thought that story was so incredible. Okay. I know everybody loved Peach Cobbler, which of course you know you can't not like think about Peach yeah. Cobbler. I mean the, the 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 scientist one, how to marry a scientist or whatever that was. Oh, called. how to make love to a physicist. Yes, yes. there <laughs> I am. Fun. Paraphrasing. <laughs> like there are just so many great stories. The one about the crabs and the women. Mm-hmm. Like it's just so good. So I'm wondering how do these people come to you? How are you mm-hmm. making so many vivid, strong characters? And how yeah. do you know when you're done with the story? Yeah. Especially because you're, you said you, it's kind of been a 20 year project in some regards. Yeah. So, well, when I started 20 years ago, excuse me, um, I started three different novels. I was just going to jump right into this writing thing and try and write a novel and two kind of died pretty quickly. And then there was a third novel that has persisted. And this next year, I hope is the year that I finish it. Um, Me too. So, so, you know, so it was, it's always been the novel. And then I had all these detours, you know, I started writing parenting column. I was doing a lot more personal essay. Then there was the whole co-parenting 101 era with my ex-husband and, you know, building that brand and writing that book. Um, And it all, and while I appreciated all of it, it all felt like a detour away Mm -hmm. from, from fiction. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, worked on the novel, the one that sort of had legs starting in 2007. Um, The agent that I have for the co-parenting book, she knew there was a novel and she's like, when you're ready, I'm ready for it. And I just stalled. I got like two thirds of the way done and I stalled. And, um, and then I started writing these short stories and I would do them at, read them at readings and um, my agent would be there. And so after one of these readings, she said, I'm really liking these church lady stories. So Mm -hmm. she was the first to really see that through line. Mm. uh, And I hadn't been thinking about them that way. And so she was suggesting that I write a collection 
while this novel was marinating for 13 years. <laughs> so um, I thought, yeah, you know, it feels more doable to do a series of stories. And she said, you know, if I could get three stories published, we could shop the manuscript on the strength of three stories. That felt possible. That right. felt less overwhelming. And I was like, I can do that. I can do that. Um, so the stories themselves come from a lot of different places. Um, but one common out, one common thread are the church women that I, you know, grew up with. And so especially the older women characters like Giles Granny, like right. those voices, you know, um, that's I remember hearing my grandmother and her friends. And now my mother and my grandmother weren't church ladies. They sent me to church, which is a whole <laughs> other thing. But I was always in church, but they were sending me. They didn't go. So I had questions about that. Um, so I had a lot of curiosity around like women who were in the church versus women who were outside of the church. And I think it just made such a huge impression on me that when I started imagining and thinking about women's lives, it was those women, especially around sex and sexuality, because as a kid, like I'm watching them, like, what is this whole womanhood thing about, you know? Mm. And like, are they as horny as I am? Do they have <laughs> sex? Like if they're not married, do they masturbate? Like, I, you know, I was right, right, right. I, you know, all in their business in my head, you know, right. I would never say anything, but I was fascinated by them. Um, and so it, it comes out, it came out later through these different stories. Um, but each of the different stories kind of has a different, um, origin, but like with Jael, since we were talking about that one, um, I read that story, the biblical account of the real Jael, not in the Bible, but I read it about it somewhere else. So then I went to the Bible and I looked it up and it was like murder, mm. you know, and so personal driving a nail through somebody's head and nailing them to the floor. Like that's personal as hell. Right. And I, and so <laughs> I just wrote that down and like, I'll save things and it'll be like a year or five years later or five days later, and then I'll come back to it, you know? And so when I was building the collection, I remember thinking, okay, what if there was a 14-year-old Black girl and this was her name? Like, right. who would name a kid that? Right. And what if, like, she sort of lived up to that? So she'd kill somebody. I had no idea why she would kill somebody or who she was or who was the person that named her that and did they know the story behind it? So I had to then fill in all of those right. gaps. So that's how Gile came about. And then How to Make Love to a Physicist I had a crush on a physicist <laughs> and I was very giddy and so excited. And, and the first line, you know, how do you make love to a physicist? It happens on Pi Day. I thought that was just so <laughs> clever. So I wrote it down. And then it was, you know, six months, a year later when I needed to finish the collection, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with this. Hmm. So the similar process with Giles, like, okay, how do they get to the making love on Pi Day? Where do, you know, I got to start. Right. I know where I want to end up. How do we get there? And I've got to complicate things for them or right. else. I, like, I don't like, you know, sentimental stuff. Um, Me neither. To throw some obstacles in that, their way, you know? And so, um, you know, who are these people? Who's the physicist? Who's this who's going to make love to him? And how do I make things difficult for them? And then they finally get to make love. So it was that sort of the the framework for those. So every story, you know, there's a some bit of, you know, there was a germ or an idea or something um, that drove it. Um, Snowfall is another interesting one, I think, mm. um, because I knew I was working on a collection. It hadn't sold yet, but I had to write something 
because I had been invited to be part of someone's book launch. You know how now people do, yeah. it's like the opening acts and then the headliner. Yeah. So my friend, Abir Hulk, um, whose book Olive Witch came out some years ago, she's Bangladeshi American, um, grew up in Pittsburgh after being born and spending the first 13 years of her life in Nigeria. But anyway, she was coming home to do her book um, launch and she invited me and Tuhin Das, who's a Bangladeshi writer in exile. Like he had to flee and come to Pittsburgh to take refuge here. And I'm like, okay, so I don't write. I write about Black women and sex. Like, (laughs) what do I have to read that's anything like, you know, the theme or whatever here? And I thought, but you know what? Both of them write about displacement. So what Black church lady story or church lady adjacent, you know, they're not church ladies. Can I write where it's this theme of displacement and it was the dead of winter and it was freezing and I hate the cold. I hate the snow. I hate to shovel. I hate all of that. Um, and that's when that line, black women aren't meant to shovel snow. Mm. And then it was like, okay, who are these black women? Um, and they're out shoveling. And then it came to me like, oh, they're not like friends or roommates. Like they're a couple. Right. Okay. All right. So they're here. And they came from somewhere warm. And then, you know, I just kind of build the story from there. I love that. I love that it's like these little seeds that you then kind of like problem solve your way into a story. It's like, um, have you ever talked to Carmen Maria Machado? I've never. Okay, because, right, you don't like fiction. But I want to. I mean, I I would like to. I've I've heard only wonderful things. So if you're listening, yes, please come on the podcast. (laughs) I interviewed her years ago, and she talked about writing fiction and writing stories as solving a math problem. Mm. And, like, I felt so seen, (laughs) you know, because I'm like, that's exactly it. Like, what if you take this and this and solve for this? Or, you know, that's how it works. And it's experimentation, and and there's a a level of play and fun to it. Yeah, and I think when it's done well, you, Mm -hmm. as a reader, can Mm -hmm. feel that. Like, I think that that's one of the things that I really like about your collection is that I Mm -hmm. feel like I got a sense of play from you. I got, even though the stories, some of them were pretty heavy and pretty dark, you know, some of them are funny and it's like, okay, but there's always sort of this sense of humor and this sense of, you know, even in the heaviest parts, the sense of lightness. And that's something that PSA and I talked a little bit about when he was on the podcast is that, and I think also I talked about it with Britt Bennett is that something Mm -hmm. that I think that is super black is finding the joy and the humor in the dark stuff. And so I think that like, (laughs) if you can nail that in the writing, that's what makes it feel realistic, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're grieving and if your character is grieving, because like even you know, I like I rem- mm-hmm. I remember so strongly at my father's funeral, like we had Jack in the Box tacos. My mom's friend picked up like so Got many of them, <laughs> and she walked in Got with this it. huge bag of tacos mm-hmm. from Jack in the Box. And like, I mean, I'm like crying right now, laughing because it's one of the funniest things I feel like that ever yeah. happened. And yet, mm-hmm. like, I think about yeah. that as like one of the strongest memories from the day of yeah. my father's funeral. You know, and so like, there's something yeah. in that. Um, I want to ask you about sort of the success 
of your book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and I say that, I guess, like outside success, not necessarily mm-hmm. how you feel about the success of your work, yeah. which I think is yeah. interesting in a different conversation. But your book was a mm-hmm. finalist for the National Book Award, which is, you know, a mm-hmm. huge freaking deal. You've been on so many lists. You've been included in so many um, conversations about best books of 2020. So I'm curious when you set out, like when you knew the book was going to mm-hmm. get published, when you knew it was happening, what were your hopes for your book? What what were you like, okay, this is the dream. And I'm going to assume that it probably wasn't like, I'm going to be a finalist for the National Book Award because I think that's like thinking you're going to win an Oscar. It's like, sure, that's yeah. great. But like, you know, you know, like, so did you have goals around what you thought you wanted to happen to the book? You know, I, my goals were minimal okay. <laughs> because especially because it had taken me so long with the novel and I hadn't finished the novel. So finishing was a goal. Right. (laughs) And then getting it published was a goal. And I'm very, I'm a very practical person. And so I knew, you know, it's a small book. It's um, short stories, which are a hard sell. My agent told me right up front, (laughs) hard sell. Um, It's on a university press. Right. And so, you know, it. I did not expect it to be a book that would have a high profile. Right. Um, I do think that my publisher might have had a sense. I mean, obviously, they chose to publish the book. I mean, and everybody was surprised. They were definitely surprised. But I feel like they really thought that it was going to have legs to the point like they made it like the lead book in... Uh, their fall 2020 catalog like that's a decision they made last year right. just on the man- from the manuscript so I was excited about that hadn't you know predicted that at all but what I wanted the book to do or to uh, you know what I would decide was success is if black women felt seen and heard in the book and that um in it that it would start conversations around the church and um, you know, sort of the reach of the church and how we, so many of us, whether you were raised in the church or not, are still trying to get free of some of that stuff because mm-hmm. the reach is far beyond, you know, the church itself and, and church people. Um, and so I wanted to have those conversations. It was not my intention ever to bash the church or bash church people. Um, and so um, I felt like it was really a conversation or that yeah. the stories could spark conversation. So yeah, those were were my goals. <laughs> and you, I mean, do you feel like you achieved those goals? I did. Oh my gosh. So lots of conversations with church folks. Um, I have had a number of book club conversations, um, but the one I had last week was with Black women church pastors. Mm. That was great. Yeah. That, now I had not predicted that, I, you know, that specific group, but that was awesome. Oh, I love um, that. And, you know, hearing that mothers and daughters are reading the book mm. together and, and having conversations that they hadn't had before. Um, I've had conversations with two of my friends who are pastors, and one of them in particular said, can you create a discussion guide to help pastors have a way to talk about this church or talk about this book, to teach this book in church. So I actually have two um, discussion guides. One of them has some ratchet playlists in it. And so, (laughs) and and then the other one is identical minus the ratchet playlist plus additional questions for church groups. 
um, because I really wanted to foster those conversations. That's so interesting. I do not have any relationship to the church. My mother's Jewish. Mm -hmm. So we were raised sort Mm -hmm. of like Jewish, but also sort of just like we celebrate all the holidays type Christian Mm -hmm. and Jewish holidays. But I did go to Catholic school. So that's Mm -hmm. like my Mm -hmm. relationship to the church. But your book still really spoke to me. So for anyone who's Mm -hmm. listening, who's like, I'm not a church person at all. Like me neither. I've like never been to church except for in my high school gym. So, you know, it's accessible, even if that's not your, your, your entry point. And if it is your entry point, you'll probably freaking love it. Um, what, what was it, as you mentioned, like one of the goals was to have black women, um, read it and have Mm -hmm. meaningful conversations and all that. What is it Mm -hmm. like for you, for your book to find success with audiences outside of your intended Mm -hmm. audience? Like, is it weird to hear, you know, like white men talk about it or like, you know, like, what is that like? It, you know, it was one of those things where I knew that my book could be, um, accessible to people who weren't black women, I didn't know, I knew it could, I didn't know it would be. I didn't know how other people would respond. Um, I knew because Toni Morrison told us that, August Wilson told us that, that you can write about Black life, you can write Black specific stories and and be telling universal stories at the same time. Um, So I knew it was possible, Um, but it, it, you know, was like a pleasant surprise to see um, this range of people finding those entry points around broader themes like freedom. Um, and uh, even if you aren't, you know, um, connected to the church or the Black church, we do know about binaries and how restrictive they are. You know, the Madonna whore, good, bad, you know. Right. Um, and all of us have had to unlearn certain binaries for ourselves or either how we engage other people. So I think there were a number of entry points. And then I think there are people who, whether sparked by, you know, the uprisings this uh, spring and summer, or just general, a general part of their anti-racism journey have made it a point to just learn about people who have experiences other than their own experiences to right. find about uh, different experiences. But in a situation where black women are centered in their own narratives. Like this is not, you read the help to learn about black women, right? right? Like, no, this is black women centered and the only gaze is our gaze. And that's how you find out about people through their own voices and where they're not marginalized in their own worlds that, you know, the world is around is in their orbit and not the other way around. Yeah. We're going to pause talking about this, about your book for now. Um, The last week of January, we're going to be discussing Danielle Evans' book, The Historical, Mm -hmm. The Office of Historical Corrections. So we will talk more about short story writing. We will talk more Mm -hmm. about Black women writing, Um, but I'm going to move off that a little bit and kind of transition. But before I do, I do want to ask you about, you mentioned this earlier, but you wrote a book with your ex-husband called Mm -hmm. Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce. And Mm -hmm. I think that like, I didn't know that about you until I was like researching for this interview. And I think that that's like sort of cool and great. And like, it speaks to the idea that if you're a writer, you write and you can write about Mm -hmm. anything. You don't have to write short stories just because you wrote a book of short stories. Like you don't have to write about parenting just because you wrote a book about parenting. But what I want to know, and I'm sure you get this all the time, So I'm going to try to put a little twist on it. What is the best piece of advice you can give to people who are 
co-parenting or in a divorce that is not the normal or most typical advice. Like it's like the thing that you're like, I think this is really important and people miss this. And then the flip mm-hmm. side is what is the piece of advice that you often hear that you think is not productive? Okay. Um, so for the first one, I think the way that my ex and I talked about it was fresh. I don't know how, I mean, the, 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 the sentiment isn't typical, okay. but we use the analogy of like a zombie, like okay. your marriage is like a zombie. And if you keep my, you know, if you stay tied up in knots around the stuff that went wrong in the marriage and you keep focusing on this person as the person who let you down or the person who cheated on you or the person who lied mm. to you, it's like, you just think of it, the rotting corpse of a zombie. Like that's what you're carrying around. That's what your children right. are exposed to. That's what you have to deal with. And so it's literally like putting that to death. Hmm. Like literally, like you have to let that die. Um, it doesn't mean that it, how you were hurt doesn't matter. You know, that's what therapy's for, but literally like the, the more you hold on to it without dealing with it, it, it's, it stinks. Literally it stinks. It's rotting. It, it, it's scary. And Mm -hmm. that's when people, you know, so if if, I think it helps for people to think about bringing that into the co-parenting situation, you're literally bringing like rotting flesh into Mm. it. So, um, so, you know, just helping people to kind of understand what what it could be the experience could be for their children when things remain toxic and the dead stuff you know is still there um the thing that people I think get wrong um is and it was a common misconception about us and our book was that we were saying or that we ever say that parents co-parents have to be friends Hmm. like you don't have to be friends right. with your co-parent to do right by your kids, you know? And in fact, sometimes when people consider themselves friends after divorce, the thing they have to worry about are boundaries, yeah. right? Cause like you've got new relationships and also that can be confusing for your kids and, you know, just, there still need to be some boundaries. Doesn't mean you can't be friends. It just means you need, you need boundaries. And we, in our book, aren't advising that the goal is to be friends with your ex. The goal is to have a healthy co-parenting relationship so that your child has the best experience possible living between two households. Friendship may or may not be in the cards and that's perfectly fine. Some co-parents are like business partners and their kids are thriving. And that's the, that's the point. What I love about you and I find so fascinating and exciting and interesting is that you are a fantastic short story writer who has lived these other lives and had these other experiences, whether it be, you know, writing this book about co-parenting or having gone through divorce, or you had other careers prior to this. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is so refreshing and exciting to hear as a reader, because I know, Mm -hmm. I know that it informs the work that you do. And I know that it allows you to have so much more going on. And I also think for people who are aspiring writers, which I am not, Mm -hmm. but for those of you who are, um, it's sort of encouraging to know that you could work on a short story collection sort of for 20 years and all of a sudden be a national book award (laughs) finalist. Like it's sort of, it's like the same thing as like Toni Morrison publishing the bluest eye at like 39. 39. It's like, this is great. This is like, you are living proof of like, just live your life and the art can come. I just love Mm -hmm. that. 
and okay. keep working at it, keep yeah. working and focusing on getting better. And it's hard because I did the same thing. We want to get published because that validates us. Right. But, um, but focusing on more as much energy on getting better mm. at writing than, you know, getting published, it right. will, that will come. Right. It's like the balance between the public um, validation and then the private yes. validation. And that's hard. And it's not yeah. always in balance. <laughs> no, no. And embracing critique, embracing revision. Basically, we just all need to like do what Toni Morrison did. Like she embraced revision. She em- embraced critique. She wrote The Bluest Eye out completely, decided it was wrong. I don't <laughs> even know what that could possibly mean. And then rewrote the whole book. Wow. I didn't know that and it was story. Not unusual for her to do 10, 11, 12 revisions of things. So who are we? If, right. you know, if, if she can do it, right. doing right. revising, we're just some basic know. ass bitches who do one <laughs> draft. <laughs> like, no, 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 oh no, no. Okay. We're going to take a quick little break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you 
with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, so I did not prep you for this part. This is the part that I always spring on my guests. Someone has okay. written in to us. They're asking for book recommendations, and we're okay. going to give it to them. So I'm going to read you their email, and then you think about what might fit. And okay. this one is actually two parts. And I thought about editing it down to one part, but then I sort of mm-hmm. liked the two partness to it. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. This is from okay. Sarah Hauer. And Sarah says, do you have any book recommendations for getting out of a reading slump? Recently, I have just felt so distracted and unfocused anytime I sit down to read, especially as I'm starting to get anxious about going back to school. I'm a high school science teacher with all the COVID stuff going on. I typically go for quick thrillers or romance novels when I'm in a slump, but I'm open to anything. And then Sarah says, also, would you have any recommendations for books on social justice or anti-racism in education? I've added a ton of books to my TBR from your anti-racist reading list, but I'd also like to find some books that speak to the experiences of students of color or other underrepresented students. I would love to learn more actionable steps and strategies for supporting my students of color and for teaching my often entitled white students how to care about people and issues other than themselves. So I, that's that. I took that to mean two kinds of books, books for Sarah and then yeah. books sort of for the education side. Um, but I'm going to yeah. do for my book, I'll go first so that you have a time okay. to think. So we'll do yeah. part one and then we'll do part two. So for part one, I'm just going to suggest a short story collection or short story collections for coming out of a reading slump because you can just focus on like, okay, I'm just going to read these like 10 pages or 20 pages Mm -hmm. and then you kind of get your groove. So obviously, what kind of person would I be if I didn't recommend The Secret Lives of Church Ladies? And the Office of Historical Corrections, because those that's the book we're going to discuss. And then also kind of to fill that out for my trifecta of amazing Black women short story writers, The Heads of Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spire. Like, so good. So that would be my sort of how to get out of a reading slump. Any of the stories from any of those collections will get you tingling in all sorts of ways. Your turn. So you took mine, okay. but that's okay. <laughs> it was Nafisa's because okay. same thing, thinking about um, short stories. Um, I'll also mention, um, and I don't know that it's out yet, but um, pre-order if it's not, it's called Milk Blood Heat oh, by okay. Daniel Moniz. I've seen this. Um, and it's on um, it's on Roxane Gay's new book club that she's oh, going to yes. do in the new year. So that's one of the titles there. And um, Dantiel is um, my homegirl. She's from Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. Um, so I would recommend her book. And then also... Um, how to sit by Tyrese Coleman. Okay. And she does this hybrid it's memoir in essays or it, not essays in memoir in nonfiction and fiction. Okay. And you don't always know which what's what. Ooh. Yeah. But it's all, you know, memoir, she, you know, in a memoir in this, it's a hybrid, I guess. Uh-huh. So um, I think that would be really interesting. That's and great. then, one other one that's not um, short stories, but that you won't be able to put down when you start is um, Bossy Ikpi's, um I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying. Mm. And that's memoir um, that will just blow you away. And it's you'll be drawn in immediately. And so, you know, pull you right out of that slump. I love that. Um, 
And then I don't have specific books for education, for educators, but I have some books that I think that if Sarah or any educator can become more Mm anti-racist, I think they will be better teachers in general. And they, you know, they have to learn and unpack their own racism and then have a develop that lens through which they see the materials they teach, the lens through which they see their students and under better understanding their students. Um, So I have several recommendations that would um, sort of just in general awareness. I Mm. think so much of the reason that, um, white supremacy just continues to flourish is because white people don't understand what it is right, right. and don't know the history and don't know, you know, how it's at play. So a really good one is White Tears, Brown Skin mm. by Ruby Harad. And um, she wrote a Guardian article a few years back uh, about white women weaponizing their tears. And then she developed this book that it looks at centuries and continent across centuries across continents of how white supremacy and misogyny, you know, are have co- have been co-created, and what that means for women of color in different countries. And you know, sometimes when people say women of color, it gets diluted. Right. She doesn't do that. Like she really looks at different groups of women in different eras and in different countries. Um, Zerlina Maxwell, The End of White Politics. Mm. Um, you know, basically in that one, she's like, we cannot elect another 70-year-old white man. And what did we do? Here we are. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So read her book. Um, and then Do Better. It has a subtitle, but it has something to do with spiritual activism. Okay. So I would say if you had to pick just one of these books, Sarah, it would be Do Better. And it's this um, a woman who's a spiritual activist. She teaches anti-racism workshops, but then she took all of her stuff and put it in a book. And they're like meditations, they're mm. writing exercises, there's breathing exercises. And it's specifically for white women. Any, any white person can benefit. And people, and, and, and Black people, people of color as well, because she, her premise is that white supremacy is affecting all of us. Right. And so she gives, but she doesn't give like blanket solutions, like depending on who you are, there are different solutions and different tools, really no nonsense. It's also part memoir and her Mm. story is fascinating. And she's, I believe she's Canadian. She's black Canadian. I love that. Um, Mediocre. Oh, so good. So good. I mean, Um, and then... This seems like it would be kind of like a a niche thing, but it's a great book. It's called Do Right By Me. And it's for white people raising black children. Mm. But I think it's great for anybody who cares about black children. And it's written by a black woman and her, one of her best friends is a white woman who adopted a black child. And so, I mean, there it's like really personal, but it's also scholarly. It's a really... really good book. I need to read that. That sounds amazing. Okay. I went in a slightly different direction than you. I kind of took the prompt and went like slightly different. Um, But Sarah, the first book is actually, I think, for educators or at least for parents. It's called This Book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell. I've not read it, but I know that she does anti-racist work in schools and with teachers. I also feel like if you're looking for books more in that world, you should follow Tiffany on social media. She's great. Um, And then what I took is you mentioned earlier that you were a high school science teacher. So instead of giving 
giving you anti-racist books that were explicitly like, this is how you dismantle racism. My challenge to you would be, maybe you should start reading and teaching science-related books that come from Black folks or folks from marginalized communities. So the three that I have, just to help you switch your perspective, to switch the ways that we think about science, because that's something that we think of as being such a white man space. And there are so many women of color who are in the science world who have been, who have been doing great things. Like obviously, you know, we all saw what's the movie where they send them to outer space and <laughs> black women hidden figures. hidden figures, you know, like there yeah. are hidden figures everywhere. But the ones I would suggest is Harriet A. Washington is she writes about medicine. Her book, um, her book, medical apartheid is an incredible book all about the different racism ways, black anti-black racism played into medicine from, um, from the C-section to Tuskegee to some crazy shit that was going on in Florida in the 90s. Like, it's an incredible book. There's also um, Ch- Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, whose new book is coming out. She is like an astrophysicist or some shit, but she's also Black and Jewish, and she's great on Twitter, and she's hell of smart, and she's a PhD, and she's writing about the same stuff you know, that someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson might be writing about, but she doesn't get the same kind of play. So even though he's black, you know, she's a woman shifting that there's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And that's a Native American perspective on sort of um, science. And and so that's another person you could check out. And then the last one I would throw out is All We Save. It's a collection edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine K. Wilkinson. And it approaches science and the environment through a feminist lens. Ayana's black. I believe Catherine is white, but she's definitely white presenting. Um, and they're collecting essays and, and text about environmental justice and recognizing that so much of the environmental justice work that we're seeing is coming from young women, um, even though that's not the way that we think about it. So that collection has to do with that. So as opposed to giving you, you know, how to be an anti-racist, I'm challenging you more to include those voices in the reading that you're doing around the work that you do. So that is my advice. Um, if you read any of those recommendations, and we gave you so many, so you better uh, let me know how it goes. Let us know how it goes. Tag us, mention us, let us know how it all went. Okay, Disha, now this is the part where we do the stacks questions where I ask you all about all the book superlatives of your life. And you already warned me, you are not good at superlatives, but we'll see. I'll be the judge of that. So we always start here. Two books you love and one book you hate. Two books I love. Um Heavy by PSA, of course. So good. One. I'm going to shout out Untrue by my friend Wednesday Martin, uh, Dr. Wednesday Martin. And she's writing about um, female sexuality and promiscuity and Mm -hmm. infidelity. And it's a, it's like a scientific, juicy scientific book, which is I love that. I love juicy science. Untrue. So there's a, a YA book that I won't name. Okay. Um, but um, my complaint about the book is sort of um, just a white writer kind of mishandling race, mm. which is, you know, problem number one. But then looking at the critical praise for this book, I think that it, like our kids, all of our kids deserve better. Mm. Right. And so if there's going to be a book that purports to handle race and, and class and sexuality as this book 
you know, was supposed to do, then it really needs to do a good job. And it really it needs to be a good story. It needs to be well-written, but it also can't be clumsy around race. And so in this particular story, you know, one of the things that was really glaring is that um, it was supposed to be about race and the main character um, was going to have to leave her white a predominantly white school and go to a predominantly black school because her father lost his job. Mm. Well, the whole book takes place the summer before. So she never actually goes to the black school. <laughs> so oh. then you just have these like token black characters. Right. And we get like a mention of the black boy and every scene he was in the mention of his white teeth in his dark skin like come on we're so beyond that yeah yeah and so you know and and so my my beef is that got published and yet you know there are black writers writing about black children who get rejected right you know and so I will always hate that book for taking the place of a book that would have been um something better for all of our kids that really could have tackled race in a way that was a resonant story, but also a a true story. You know, even as fiction, it needs to be true in the sense of like black, the black characters being fully realized and being three-dimensional and not caricatures. Right. Right. So Uh, just, it's just so frustrating because like you said, there's so many writers who can do it better and they mm-hmm. don't get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Did you read that thing in the New York Times, I think last week or two weeks ago, about mm-hmm. like how white publishing was? And there was a part where it was like, well, we yeah. already have Jason Reynolds. So why do we need that? It's like, well, I, look, I agree. I love Jason Reynolds. Like, you know, please, more Jason Reynolds all the time. <laughs> but we are not interchangeable. We are not interchangeable. And the fact that they even, you know, fix right. their mouths to say that is just enraging. It's it is just- absolutely enraging right and it's like at least you know again I can't speak for everybody but as a black woman in America like Mm -hmm. we've all I I have been in that situation where I feel like I didn't get something because someone else did yeah and I know Mm -hmm. that there's room for all of us at the table but it builds into it built into me this sense of like, well, I have to do everything I can to get like, and it may, it builds that crabs in a barrel mentality. And it isn't until mm-hmm. recently that I've even really started to unpack like the ways that I behave because of that stuff, which sort of is to your point mm-hmm. about like white supremacy is mm-hmm. in all of us, even if, yes. even if we're not necessarily perpetuating it on purpose or be, we're not right. white supremacists, we're still dealing we're with that stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you get someone like a Kiese who is disrupting that right. by saying, I'm going to be a gateway. I'm going to bring as many people with right. me as possible. You know, he doesn't see other writers as competition, you right. know? Right. Um, and so that's, we have to do more of that. Right, right. I had a great conversation um, with the women who wrote Big Friendship, Aminatou So and Anne Friedman. And they, it's a book about being friends. Mm-hmm. So they have this thing that they call shine theory, which is like, it's not for everybody, right? Like, it's not like just just because you're a woman of color, just because you're black or just right. because you're the same as me, mm-hmm. you have to be successful. But it's about building your community and helping to like... I don't shine until you shine and you don't shine until I shine and making space and talking about salary and like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And what they said that I found really interesting is that they talked about how that's a practice. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. something that they do naturally or it's not necessarily the natural impulse 
because of the ways we've been conditioned, but that there's an active, like, I'm going to repurpose this. And like, I'm going to take, I'm going to take, like, for me, it's like, I'm super competitive and I'm just competitive about Mm -hmm. everything. I am. I really am. I know it's terrible. It's like some disgusting American (laughs) shit that I have and I'm just super competitive, but I have to take, have to make a concerted effort to stop and be like, am I being competitive for a good reason? Or am I being petty? Am I being mean? Am I being mm. a gatekeeper? Am I stopping someone else? Mm-hmm. And and do I need to be? Am I right. stopping them because I'm jealous or am I stopping them because I think they're harmful, you know, or like because mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. they're going to get in the way in an actual disruptive bad way. Um, right. But that's sort of like this, the work that I have to do as someone who like loves black women and loves black men and loves queer, you know, like I, I'm all for everyone being successful, but then in the moment it's like, oh shit, what are you doing? What have you been taught? Um, and that, and I feel like what you're saying about that book is like, it sort of perpetuates all of that just in the publishing Mm -hmm. of it. Right. Like just in it existing, it meant that someone else didn't get an opportunity and it meant that someone else had to like put that armor on. Right. And, and, you know, in the, the scrutiny where no one in the chain said is that, you know, the intentionality that you're describing, like how you interrogate yourself, like publishing has to interrogate itself and saying, we know that we have this problem. We know that historically we've misrepresented, um, you know, let's just say black people in this case, we know that white people telling black stories is fraught with landmines of things that not and and they don't always understand that it's harmful like you're actually doing harm right and like I teach a a workshop on um writing about journeys other than your own and it's called first do no harm because I think people have to understand like it's not like oh if you get this wrong no big deal like you're part of a, a, a tradition and a historical context of how harmful, how these wrong narratives hurt people. Wrong narratives justified justified enslavement. Right. Like stories literally matter that much. You cannot just get it wrong. Right. Um, and so, but you have to have people at the table will, who are capable of doing that interrogation of themselves. Right. You know, or if you don't have any black people at the table who are going to do the interrogation of you. Um, And so it's like putting, you know, the what is it putting the the something in charge of the hen house, the fox in charge of the hen house. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We got off on a tangent. But I do. We have to go. We have to talk about this when we talk about um, the Office of Historical Corrections. I want to talk about writing people different than yourself. Okay. What are you reading right now? A couple of things. Like I'm multitasking. Okay. Uh, I can say this because Kirkus said it when they wrote about my book. I review books for Kirkus. Okay. So I'm reading a, um, a YA book right now and an adult book right now that I can't name. Okay. Um, and also um, finishing The Prophets by Robert Jones. Oh, okay. I, I, have, yeah. I have to read it still. I'm like trying to cram in two more 2020 releases before the year ends because one of my goals yeah. for 2021 is to focus almost exclusively on 2021 releases mm-hmm. because I just want to see what it's like to read ahead and like yeah. use my platform for good. Mm-hmm. I, I like You absolutely use your platform. <laughs> right. But like, I feel like I have this platform and I'm like, great, but wouldn't it be nice if I could be like, this book is coming out. Everyone keep your oh, eyes out thing. for it. You know, okay. like, especially gotcha. in this yeah. time of COVID, because normally yeah. I read like close to release date, but I think I want to read mm-hmm. ahead. So that's my goal. Anyways, so the profits is okay. the profits and black buck 
are the two books that are early 2021 releases that I'm hoping to get to mm-hmm. as soon as the year changes over. Not that anybody asked, <laughs> just telling you about my reading list. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Okay. I how, haven't heard about Black Book. It's like, I think it's supposed to be like a satire and it's sort of, mm-hmm. it's from HMH. Um, I don't know. It's supposed to be funny and good and he likes this podcast and his publicist mm-hmm. told me that I was the podcast that he asked to be on, the only one he has to be on, on for his book tour. So I'm like super excited about that. So you'll probably hear him on the show soon. Right. Um, but that was a really nice thing for someone to say. Um, yes. Okay. How, if you're not reviewing for Kirkus, how do you mm-hmm. pick your next book? Do you like read about it? Like New York Times, you just rely on friends, bookstagram, like what do you do? Bookstagram, Twitter. Um, I try and read, you know, friends, uh, like my friend Brian Broom's book, Punch Me Up to the Gods is mm. coming out, memoir, so it's nonfiction. You'll, you're going to love it. Wait, I just, um, I was, I just put that on my reading list like yesterday. Oh um, so yeah, so, but, uh, in this pan time of, you know, the pandemic, you know, one of the things we could do was buy books right? and, you know, cause we can be safely at home reading, but buying the books, you know, we're supporting authors who can't physically get out and promote right. books. We're supporting indie bookstores. So buying books was just a great, you know, it had just had all of these benefits. Right. And so, um, I, you know, just between Twitter and bookstagram, <laughs> That's where I've been finding out about books and, um, and then, you know, people now want to send me books. So that's awesome. Yeah. So free books. Um, but I still, you know, I still try and buy books, even yeah. books that get sent to me. Like I'll have multiple copies and just gift one to somebody. Um, but that's usually where it is. Like there's somebody I know who has a book coming out. Um, and, um, you know, because a lot of my friends are writers, right. you know, and, right. and, and, you know, prose writers, um, poets. So, you know, I'll have some poetry collections in the mix as well. Okay. You mentioned gifting books. So what's a book mm-hmm. that you like to recommend to people? Um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Mm. Um, I gave that, um, or people are getting, some people are getting that for Christmas okay. from me. Um, also my friend Yona Harvey's, um, second collection of poems, um, you don't have to go to Mars for love, Okay, which I thought is a great title and it's just a fantastic collection. Um, so that's a common gift book. Um, I have, I was on the streak where I was giving the men in my life, uh, heavy Mm -hmm. and, um, survival math, Mitchell Mitchell Jackson, Jackson. survival math. Um, and then also, um, Rian's book, um, the world uh, may destroy you. The world doesn't require you. Doesn't require you. Yeah. Uh, that's a great collection of short stories. So, um, I was, but heavy, definitely like so many guys that I know got heavy from me and, uh, it's like therapy. (laughs) Um, you mentioned buying books. So what is the last book you purchased and from what bookstore? Um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, okay. Sadia Hartman's book, um, from, um, through bookshop.org. So yeah. it was probably White Whale. Okay. Um, yeah. And what about other favorite indie booksellers, bookstores? Oh, City Books in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, they are such a champion of, um, authors and, um, 
and readers. And fun fact about City Books here in Pittsburgh, when the Ma Rainey's Black Bottom um, mm -hmm. production, they um, Levy, he reads, he's a reader, I think it's Levy, and he they needed books from that looked old. And City Books is a used bookstore. Mm -hmm. And they went to City Books and said, we need some books for Levy and, or a book. And they ended up taking a stack from her. So when you see the movie, those books are from City Books in Pittsburgh, which is cool because August Wilson is here. Yeah. Um, Pittsburgh has one um, Black-owned bookstore, which is Tiny Books. Okay. Um, but also shout out to Harriet's Books uh, Bookshop yes. in Philly, Loyalty Bookstores, mm. and Uncle Bobby's. Yes, 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 yes. We love we love all those bookstores. Um, we love all bookstores except for ones that are racist. What is a the last really good book that someone recommended to you? Thinna by mm. Nate Marshall. Okay, poetry. Yeah. Are you yeah. big into poetry? Um, well, I go back and forth. Like it's usually again someone I know, uh -huh. right? So my friend Yona, you know, when her collection came out, I had to read that. My friend um, Kelly Stevens Kane uh, poetry collection, um, Hallelujah Science, had mm. to read that. Um, Reginald Dwayne Betts, his collection Felon. Mm -hmm. I have it. Um, I haven't read it yet. Is ooh, it so yeah, good? You gotta read that. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. And uh, then you know, probably on Twitter, I saw Nate's book, and it was like the title is Finna. Of course, I gotta yeah, read it. Yeah. I didn't know anything else about it, but I, I was like, I'm gonna, you know, I, I, um, somebody was recommending it via Twitter, and right. then that's how I end up finding out about it. How do you organize your books? Oh, it's a mess. So I have bookshelves in my bedroom. There's usually a stack of books in my living room. There are books on my nightstand. There's always at least one book in the bathroom. And then I have like a purse book and then I have a car book. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not in my car as much, but you know, you got to have a purse book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I live in LA and so I don't really have a purse book because I feel like in mm -hmm. LA you're in the car. You're like never, but I do, I guess yeah. I do have a book. I've just, I also like to read one book at a time, mostly when I can. Oh. Yeah. But it's that's changed a lot since starting this podcast. Yeah. I used to be like, I'm a one book pony. I only read one book. <laughs> and now I'm like reading five books right now. And yeah, I'm like, exactly. I only read one book, but I'm actually reading a lot of books. So who knows? Um, okay. What else do I want to know about your reading life? So this is sort of like a little speed round. I'm going to just ask you and you tell me mm -hmm. just the book, the first book that pops into your head for this answer. So the last book that made you laugh. It was probably Nafisa's book, okay. The Heads of the Colored People. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last book that made you cry? Uh, the Prophets. Okay. Last book where you felt like you learned a lot? Untrue. Okay. Untrue. Yeah. Okay. A book that brings you joy? My book. Okay. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Are there any books that you feel proud to have read? Yeah. Sort of going back um, there's a book called Oreo by Fran Ross, mm -hmm. and it is the first satirical novel by a Black woman. It was written in 1974. And um, talk about tackling, you know, race and sex right. and class and sexuality. She really does it. And um, and it's so smart and funny. And even though it's set in the 70s, there's just certain things like the humor is still timeless. Um, and then she, she died young, um, without having finished a second book because she had to work. She had to freelance like a lot of us. And mm -hmm. her story is so common for black women writers. Um, and so, uh, I think it was Harriet Mullen sort of 
had a revival of this book the same way Alice Walker did for Zora Neale Hurston's work. Um, and so Matt Johnson was, you know, kind of telling, I was in a class with Matt for um, Hurston Wright's Writers Week and he was like, everybody should read Oreo. Um, and so that was in 2007. And I just got another copy because I lent my copy to somebody and didn't get it back. <laughs> and so it's, you know, so it, it's one that I just, yeah, I'm so inspired by just the story, not the technical story, but but her story, the author's story. Right, right. And that how trailblazing she was. Mm, I love that. Do you have a problematic favorite book? <laughs> yeah, I mean, depending on, you know, whose definition of problematic, but um, I was way too young, but I was like, in elementary school and I read the happy hooker. I don't know that. And, <laughs> you don't know. Okay. So seventies might even been six. I'm not, I mean, I was in born in the seventies, but I don't know. This book was came out in the sixties or seventies and it was scandalous because it was a woman who wrote joyfully about being a hooker. Oh, and my next this. neighbor who was babysitting me had a bookshelf. And so <laughs> I would just get books off the shelf and nobody ever said I couldn't read these books. And I was a precocious reader. So I, if I didn't know what those words meant, I went right to the dictionary <laughs> and I was scandalized. <laughs> and so I don't recommend it. And I certainly would not want my kids to read the, the happy hooker in elementary school. But, um, but yeah, my mind was blown. Oh my God. I love that so much. Okay. I'm going to just give you two more and then we have to okay. stop because we have to talk about Danielle's book, but here's okay. your two more. What is a book speaking of young Disha? What is a book that you think should be that if you were a teacher, you would assign mm -hmm. in high school? I would assign, um, heavy in high school Okay, just because just to help black boys um see the full range of human expression mm -hmm. that they're allowed they're mm. allowed to access all of that and the tenderness in that book um and and then i would also recommend uh daddy was number runner which okay. is my favorite ya book um for well i mean i think you know all genders should read heavy and all genders should read Daddy was a number runner set in 1930s Harlem. It's a coming of age story. And even though, you know, it was the 1930s, that was the first book I saw myself in as a black child. Um, and so I just, you know, I think a lot of times when we, we have black books for students to read and then I'm certainly Toni Morrison, great and James Baldwin, but, you know, I don't know that um, black students are reading enough black YA right. Yeah, you know, I'm. I don't know. Like my kids, I know read like Fences and right. certain other books, but those would be two. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, this is really exciting for me. I just realized you are the okay. last person who will get to answer this question for this particular person. So just here we go. Okay, all right. I steal this one from the New York Times by the book. If you could require the current president of the United States to read <laughs> one book. What would it be? And you will be the last person on this podcast to recommend Ooh. a book for 45 because this comes out the first week of January and then February, we have a new president. Yes. 
<laughs> yes. Okay, I want to get the full title. It's called Why Didn't We Riot? A Black Man in Trump Land by mm. Isaac Bailey. Okay. And he was he's a black man in white spaces and he talks about race and kind of breaks down um what it's been like, you know, living under Trump but he also puts it in historical context, right? And he talks a lot about um, the criminal justice system and mass incarceration and just the putting, again, just putting the Trump presidency in in good context. Um, And so it's a book about Trump, but not just about Trump. I love it. And it would force him, I mean, can he read? I don't even know. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> we have to just that is a little suspense. Him about himself. Yeah, oh, I love it. Okay, you're amazing, everyone. This is Disha Filia. She is going to be back the last week of January when we discuss the Office of Historical Corrections. If you haven't yet, please pick up a copy of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Disha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. That does it for us. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Disha for being our guest. Disha will be back on January 27th for the Stacks Book Club discussion of the Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. Please subscribe to the Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, please follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 